the pro-abortion domestic terrorists firebombing pro-life groups and pregnancy resource centers announces a night of rage for the evening that Roe v. Wade falls. This group, Jane's Revenge, calls for followers to, quote, carry their anger out into the world by, quote, expressing it physically. As the high places begin to crumble, we begin to realize that this culture war was always just a proxy war for the spiritual war. The rage of Moloch, Tezlitapoca, and Huizlitapokli is only beginning, and their disciples will do their master's bidding. Time to wake up. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Welcome to the show today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, Excuse the remote setup as I am still on the road with my family. Appreciate you guys tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the episodes from my sermon at Freedom House Church in Charlotte and our Freedom Night with Turning Point Faith at Freedom House in Charlotte was an incredible event. Gives you a lot of encouragement, doesn't it? A little bit more optimistic about the future of the country of Christendom and of the pro-life movement. If you're new to this show or you have not given the show a rating and review yet, would you do that? Um, I know there are a lot more of you as listeners than there are ratings and reviews on the podcast. Just hit five stars, super easy. I humbly ask you to do that. Leave a review. It really does drive it up the charts um, and more people see it in the top charts in, you know, politics and commentary or culture, and they tune in. So we really appreciate that. So I noticed this um, a while back. It's still fairly recent because uh, everything's still been fairly recent since the Supreme Court draft leak that announced that the Supreme Court intended to overturn Roe v. Wade by allowing the Mississippi Gestational Age Act, which bans abortion at 15 weeks, in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization lawsuit to stand. And now you're sensing and seeing, if you watch other things besides CNN and the activist media networks, that pro-life groups and pregnancy research centers are getting firebombed, uh, Molotov cocktails are being thrown into them, and these are wonderful ministries and nonprofits that often operate underfunded and understaffed as it is, and now have lost most of their property, their goods, and everything that they utilize to love on children and families. And so this is shouldn't be surprising to you, and I've been predicting this for some time. In fact, I was saying as, as long as a year ago that if and when Roe v. Wade is overturned, you're going to have riots in the street. People will die. And, and unfortunately, I'm of the opinion that it will make the summer of 2020 actually look mostly peaceful because this is the highest priority in progressivism. And we'll talk a little bit about that. I've talked about that before in the show, and I think at the Freedom House Church sermon as well, this sacrament of progressivism, this centerpiece of their ideology, if you will, that really represents their entire political regime and philosophy, which is to invert and pervert everything, right? And if you can invert the right to life, and there is no dignity attached to the individual in virtue of being human, well, then there's nothing else you can't invert and pervert. And then there's no end to your political project. Uh, And that's kind of always been the point, folks, to entirely upend society so they can recreate it in their own debauched images. It's an alternative religion. It's the fulfillment of that first lie that if you do it an alternative way, if you get woke, (laughs) God's holding out on you, right? For God knows that when you eat the apple, your eyes will be opened. You're not seeing reality for what it really is. Do it my way, says the serpent. Then you'll see reality, right? Then you'll be like a God. Uh, Abortion is sort of this, this singular example of man's pursuit to become God, right? To deify himself and to sacrifice children to extend his own life. It's like abortion is almost this pagan replacement for man's pursuit of eternal life. And so because of that, okay, because of how central this issue is to the secular moral revolution, nothing infuriates them more 
than being told that you might not be able to kill as many babies. That there might be duties and responsibilities that actually flow from your sexual decisions. <laughs> Namely, that sex is, sex is naturally biologically oriented towards procreation. And so when you procreate a human, you have responsibilities for that human. Namely, firstly, to not kill them. And then secondly, to actually protect and provide for them. So if there's this natural moral order <laughs> that flows from biological realities, then that means that such biological realities are objective and they can't be changed, which kind of is the polar opposite of progressivism, isn't it? Which is to upend everything, <laughs> that everything is malleable or socially constructed. Uh, but if it's not, and there's actual like moral duties that flow from biological realities it destroys and halts the entire progressive agenda. So just a little bit of commentary on, on why this is so central and why you're seeing something like this. A night of rage. Rage being planned. That they're organizing and coordinating for when Roe v. Wade gets overturned or the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization lawsuit and the law of Mississippi is allowed to stand. This is why it's so central to everything that they want. And so a pro-abortion terrorist group has issued a communique instructing its followers to carry anger out into the world by expressing it physically on the night the Supreme Court releases the opinion in the Dobbs versus Jackson case, which due to a leaked draft opinion is expected to overturn Roe. The night of rage message allegedly from Jane's revenge, excuse me, was downloaded by an anarchist website on May 31st. And so here's what they say in this communique. They say, consider this your call to action. On the night the final ruling is issued, a specific date we cannot yet predict, but we know is arriving imminently, we are asking for courageous hearts to come out after dark. Whoever you are and wherever you are, we are asking for you to do what you can to make your anger known. We have selected a time of 8 p.m. for actions nationwide to begin, but know that this is a general guideline. There may be other considerations involved in planning time and space and place. We do not claim to speak for every community or crew. We are simply calling out to you, and we hope you answer our cries. Really sick, strange language, because, of course, it's this whole issue is about the screams and silent cries of preborn children as they're ripped limb from limb in their mother's wombs. And now they're saying, here are cries. They say to the cis male allies who would be interested in joining us in the streets, we say, you are certainly welcome, but you must use your privilege to shield and support us in a way that also enables us to get angry. Do not police us. Do not tell us what is and isn't appropriate, but do aid us when we are in need. Um, and then it says the message then tells followers not to not to wait until the verdict arrives, but to take action now to take action now. So they're planning this night of rage where everyone who loves abortion and wants to kill babies can express how angry they are, that they now have responsibilities from their sexual decisions. Um, but they're saying, don't wait now. Don't wait for when Roe v. Wade gets overturned to, to burn down the country and, and just copy what we did the summer of 2020 with the BLM riots and insurrections around the country. Um, start now. Take action now as well. Okay, And then we'll just, we'll just intensify it um, up until the point that the high place gets tumbled down. And they are. They are taking action now. And you're not going to hear about this from any mainstream media news uh, networks. I, I don't even think Fox has done a good enough job, to be honest. But pro-abortion domestic terrorists are firebombing and destroying and graffitiing pro-life organizations and pregnancy resource centers. I feel like I see another one every other day now. This last weekend in Gresham, Oregon, a pregnancy resource center was burned to crisp. And They've been writing on the walls of these pro-life groups the words, if abortions aren't safe, then you aren't either. A direct physical threat, okay? Now, it's worth bringing up because I hadn't brought it up in the podcast yet at this point because we've been traveling. I've been really busy. But I, I did post about it on social media that a man went to the neighborhood where Brett Kavanaugh, Supreme Court Justice, lives, where his children sleep intending to murder him, okay, with a gun, with other types of weapons, intending to murder Justice Kavanaugh, 
okay? He was apprehended, arrested. I'm not clear on the entire story. I was reading some reports that maybe he called himself in. But he went there with the intention of murdering a Supreme Court justice in large part due to the expected pro-life ruling in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. Now, remember, Chuck Schumer two years ago said on the steps of the Supreme Court at the time that the Supreme Court was ruling on a different abortion-related case, he said, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, I want to tell you, Gorsuch, that if you basically, if you rule the wrong way, right, that there, there's going to be fury released in the country. And then he, then he said, you won't know what hits you if you go ahead with these decisions, meaning if ruling in a pro-life way, you won't know what hits you. A direct threat of violence against sitting members of the Supreme Court of the United States of America, allegedly the freest country in the world. Now, of course, if Trump says, go make your voice heard, let's go peacefully march, that's inciting an insurrection, according to Democrats today. But if if you're uh, Schumer and you directly threaten violence against sitting Supreme Court justices, there's no investigations. There's no call for him to step down or be removed from committees. Uh, it's, it's just disgusting. It just goes to show you once again that this is so much more about power and the love of power than it is you know, politics, all right, or then it is good faith agreements with people on the other side. So now, have you heard about any of these uh, terrorist bombings and fire bombings on the mainstream media? No, but you do hear Democrat leaders bitching and moaning about our democracy and the radicals threatening our way of life because of the January 6th insurrection, they call it. Um, you know, now before you get your panties in a wad, if you're a moderate listening to this, yes, I believe rushing inside the Capitol was a stupid and wrong thing to do. Okay. But honestly, we need to wake up, folks. The Dems have completely ignored the actual insurrections and domestic terrorism during the summer of 2020 while spending millions on demonizing and jailing folks who walked around inside of the Capitol, often upon the invitation of the Capitol Police, who did nothing to stop them, and at least one who told multiple people. Hey, just be peaceful, you know, just don't touch anything. Oh, yeah, and also they murder a million babies a year, which is the greatest example of domestic terrorism today. <laughs> it's violence against American individuals to achieve political goals, okay, um, or sexual goals in this case. Now, they'll say, well, the unborn baby's not a citizen. They're not born, so they're not naturalized, whatever. It's still a human being. It's still in America. So this is your hot take on this these violent riots happening and firebombing of pro-life groups. The Democrat Party and the firebombing pro-abortion domestic terrorists are all the same thing. They're all on the same team. BLM Incorporated was the Democrat Party's domestic terrorist arm in 2020, and the firebombing pro-aborts are the Democrat Party's domestic terrorist arm for 2022. And we've seen hardly a single major Democrat leader come out and explicitly condemn these activities, okay? Or uh, hold Chuck Schumer responsible for inflamer, inflamed rhetoric that would justify these kinds of actions. And remember when Jen Psaki was asked, does the White House have an opinion on people protesting loudly and angrily outside the homes of Supreme Court justices where their children sleep? She said the White House doesn't have an opinion on where people protest, okay? So have you noticed? <laughs> the leftist rage is never more pronounced and intense than on abortion. You ever wondered why that is? We talked about it a little bit at the front of the show, but let's dive a little bit deeper into this question. What drives them so crazy when it comes to abortion? I want to offer the humble beginning of an answer, if you will, if you'll bear with me, okay? This culture war was always just a proxy war of the spiritual war. Okay, and, and I'm beginning to say this more and more, and I think it bears repeating, so if you're a faithful listener to the podcast, you already heard me say this recently in Charlotte, but I think we need to say it again. We have this tendency as pro-life Christians who have been living and paddling in the streams of the culture of death for so long to become accustomed to that culture. Culture is an incredibly powerfully formative thing. And unfortunately, too many of us are more impacted by, let's call it the secular liturgy, mm -hmm, right, than we are by a biblical worldview, okay, 
or the natural law or the natural order. We go along to get along and we say we believe abortion's evil, but we do begin to become accustomed to it. And so you have all these Christians in America who say they're pro-life but don't live like they believe it's a person in the womb, right? And you have people who say they're pro-life but they vote for Democrats because they say I'm whole life and these other issues matter too. So I'll look past the 65 million lynched babies in order to secure social safety nets and welfare programs for born neighbors who weren't murdered because that's a pro-life thing too. You see what I mean? They're allowing the the soft bigotry of the dehumanizing view of the unborn to impact how they live, despite the fact that these people say they believe what we believe, that the unborn child is a baby, a person with rights, because it's not just a culture war, right? That was always a proxy war for the deeper spiritual warfare. And Satan has so successfully used the Johnson Amendment, this idea of the separation of church and state, that this is, this is church, this is politics. They don't intersect, so don't get involved. He so successfully used that to create politically impotent Christians, dare I say spiritually impotent Christians, who allow the other side to define the terms of engagement. By calling an actual genocide of babies, it's just just politics. And then we abdicate and go, oh, well, the church isn't supposed to be political. Well, as to paraphrase William Wilberforce, if being political and standing up for my black neighbor makes me a radical, then I'm the most insufferable radical ever permitted at large. <laughs> or as I've often said, if standing against the genocide of baby image bearers makes me a political hack, fine, I'm the greatest political hack you've ever met. Because <laughs> we understand that these issues are political in the sense that they were legalized, but at bottom, they're spiritual and moral issues. So the pagan deities... The pagan deities of the religion of secular progressivism are nothing but obese, fat, lard demons. Let me say that again. The pagan deities of the religion of secular progressivism, because all human conflict is ultimately theological, to quote Cardinal Manning, are just obese, fat, lard demons extremely accustomed to their annual supply of 50 million babies worldwide for dinner. And they especially enjoy the more developed and larger babies. Well, America is only one of about seven countries that allow abortion through point of birth. So overturning the Roe versus Wade decision that guarantees these demons such delicious infant morsels naturally pisses them off. That's, that's, that's what's going on, right? Satan masquerades as an angel of light. It shouldn't surprise us if his followers do the same. Scripture tells us this, right? We know that God intervenes in the affairs of men but so does Satan, to the degree that God allows him to. But Satan can wreak havoc. He can possess people. He can influence people. Right? Go read Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Get a little bit of picture of how the Lord of Flies works on earth. But the overeater is always hungry, isn't he? That's the thing about overeating. You always feel hungry. Well, these overeating infanticidal demons that devour children are always hungry for more. What if that's the answer? What if the answer is that simple? What if there are demons feeding on aborted babies? What if we had spiritual glasses for the spiritual realm? And when scripture says we, that we're contending against principalities and forces in the heavenly realms, what if God could give us glasses and then the heavenly realm and the spiritual realm became physical? Hmm? What would we see? I think we would see demons in the rooms of every abortion clinics in this country. I believe that. Because human sacrifice has always been a specialty of Satan, and his followers have perfected that specialty through their perverted sacrament of abortion. Satan's always been behind the killing of babies, right? He's the dragon in Revelation waiting for Mary to give birth so he can eat the Christ. He's buying the killing of babies by Herod in Bethlehem and by Pharaoh in Egypt, right? This, this is Satan's pride and joy. Mm -hmm. So what if that's the answer? What if it's just that simple? What if this has always been a spiritual war 
that Satan has reinterpreted through the language and realm of politics. So is it beyond the stretch of the imagination to say that the abortion industry, the people leading it, the Democrat Party today, and most of its adherents, not all of them, but most of its leaders in that party are being used by demons and the Lord of Flies himself. What if that, the answer is that simple? What if that's why they have that rage? What if that's why they're planning a night of rage? Because the demons are screaming. Because they're hungry. Because they want their delicious infant morsels. And if Roe v. Wade falls, and up to half of the states in this country almost or totally ban abortion, their plates of children will be cut in half. And until, and that begins the process, of course, of the total abolition of abortion, which is the duty of the church. And there's no more excuses, because now we can work through our political legislators in our states to get the right godly men and women elected to ban abortion and hold them accountable. So I want to talk a little bit about human sacrifice, because at the end of the day, isn't that just what abortion is? Aren't we just talking about human sacrifice? At the largest level in human history, of course. Isn't that crazy? Abortion is not just the, the greatest example of human sacrifice in terms of how it's done and why it's done, right? In order to get a blessing in return, improve your own life, right? Live a little bit longer. But in the numbers, it's the greatest example applicably, but it's also the greatest example numerically. There is no other example of more human beings being sacrificed than abortion. And we kill about 50 million babies a year worldwide, over 65 million since 1973 in America. So I want to talk about this. At the consecration of the Temple Mayor, the Temple Mayor in Tenochtitlan, okay, in 1487, the Aztecs ritually slaughtered 4,000 people. There are accounts of this, okay? There are people who, who watched this happen. Sliced their hearts out, lifted it up to the sky to honor these Aztec alleged deities, just demons, right? While the heart was still beating. Then they would kick the bodies of their victims down the towering steps of the temple, and these sacrifices were done in large, obviously in that example, and small numbers throughout the year to reverse drought and famine was the belief, of course. So the rationale for Aztec human sacrifice was first and foremost a matter of survival. They believed that it was required, okay? According to Aztec cosmology, the sun god, okay, now this is, this is a mouthful, okay, you've got to look up the pronunciation, but this is one of the two major Aztec deities, which are demons masquerading as little idols, okay? The sun god pronounced Witzlipochtli, Witzlipochtli was waging a constant war against darkness. That's what, that was the belief. He was the sun god. And if the darkness won, the world would end, Okay? So to keep the sun moving across the sky and preserve their very lives, the Aztecs had to feed Witzelapokli with human hearts and blood. <laughs> Am I the only one seeing similarities to our current cultural and political moment? So a sun god demanded human sacrifice or else the world would be plunged into darkness and everyone would die. That is the identical call from secular liberals today who demand the necessity of abortion to curb overpopulation, which they claim causes climate change, which will plunge us into a cold darkness and everyone will die. <laughs> right? AOC saying several years ago, we've got, what'd she say? We have, eight, we have 10 years or something like that. We have 10 years to get climate change under control or we're not, there's not going to be an earth anymore. And of course, you know, Atheists have been making these claims for years. It's never, of course, happened. Their prophecies have never come fulfilled. And most climate activists say they are concerned with the overpopulation crisis and therefore suggest that people have fewer children to conserve environmental resources. 
So therefore, they say abortion is actually – it's actually also a part of what they call environmental justice, right? They, they put the word justice onto everything, right? Racial justice, reproductive justice, environmental justice. It's obviously such BS, right? There, there's justice and there's injustice, right? If you have to qualify the word justice, you actually don't know what justice is. But why should that surprise us? These are people who murder babies and call it health care. So they're saying, hey, we're just going to have to kill some people to save the planet or or – if we don't, if we don't, then Witzelapokli will get angry and the sun will cease to shine and move across the sky and we'll be plunged into a cold, cold darkness and we'll all die. It's the same thing, but it's done under the veneer of politics. It's done under the veneer of false compassion and people go along with it and they accept the lie. Of course, this is incredibly ironic, right? <laughs> They're saying the, the future generations deserve to live in a healthy, clean, and sustainable planet. And to ensure this future for our posterity, we're going to have to murder a lot of future generations. <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> You're saying we have to upend our lives and sacrifice for the health and wealth and sustainability of our posterity by murdering our posterity. No, that it doesn't work that way, okay? <laughs> what are some examples of this, by the way, today? There's a climate activist named Astra Taylor. She's done a documentary. She's a far-left progressive, Astra Taylor, who wrote a piece in The Guardian in 2019, and she literally claimed, quote, climate breakdown is a violation of the rights of those yet to be born. The same claim, right? That we're harming future generations, those yet to be born, through our, our irresponsible handling of, you know, the environment and, and climate change, climate control, right? Um, however, Astra Taylor is rapidly pro-abortion. <laughs> so according to Astra Taylor and the folks at The Guardian, future generations matter so much that we must upend our lives and our rights in order to create a sustainable climate for them, but also the next generation has no right to life in the womb. Wait, wait, wait you can't have it both ways. You can't appeal to the dignity of the individual of those yet to be born to demand that we sacrifice for their good and their rights while also claiming that actually the next generation has no right to life in the womb because they're not persons. Bernie Sanders is popular for doing this as well. You might remember this a couple of years ago. Bernie Sanders was asked um, about overpopulation and what they call climate catastrophe, right? They always have a new term. In a September 2019 climate change town hall, okay? And the Vermont senator said the U.S. ought to provide funding for abortion and contraception, quote, in poor countries, end quote, in poor countries. So, okay, pause, listen. So he's linking the climate catastrophe to abortion. This event, this town hall was not about abortion. It wasn't about health care. It wasn't about any other euphemism they could tangentially relate to abortion. It was about overpopulation and primarily climate catastrophe. Okay, the climate, that we can't piss off the sun god, right? Uh, Witzelapokli is very angry, right? <laughs> and his answer was, we need to fund abortion and contraception in poor countries, okay? We must feed Witzelapokli. He's angry. He's so angry. Do you start to sense maybe some of the demonic hysteria that is actually operative behind these individuals? and these movements and this industry? Why is it that the arguments are so similar to Aztec genocidal infanticidal human sacrifice demons? It's always interesting too, right? They never start with themselves. Like, hey, Bernie, start with yourself then. Why don't you just volunteer to be killed, right? No, 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 no. It always has to be someone else that should be killed to solve the alleged manufactured problem of overpopulation. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Um. Pretty, pretty disgusting, right? Like, oh no, it's just, it's just, it's not me. It's not America. It's just those poor countries and, and their people that you don't want reproducing too much. So we need to fund abortions in their countries and we need to fund contraception. We don't want those people reproduce. Ew, ew, those people. I don't want more of those people. And we're going to get to some of the eugenic history behind people like Bernie Sanders, right? Because this does fit into the larger history of Malthusian ethics that progressives have always been seduced by and fascinated by. And there's a pretty disgusting history behind all of that. So, so let's dive into that next because I think it's important for you to know some of the history and the worldviews, okay, and the progression of ideas that has led us to this moment where we are, we are demanding for and praising the sacrifice of children 
to appease the sun god. <laughs> okay, and the mother nature, the climate, right? The, isn't it funny how 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 religious we are as human beings that that we we still operate within this sort of like eternal mindset and religious structure, even even from atheist progressives who deny any you know religious underpinnings or objective moral underpinnings, they're still saying we have to kill all the babies so that the the sun won't be angry. So so the sky, the sky god, the sun god, the climate will be happy with us. And you'll hear sometimes they'll some Democrats have gone as kooky as to literally say things like this that like that we're being punished by the climate for our sins. I think Oprah or some other people are saying, or Whoopi Goldberg on The View said something like this one time. It's like, well, the climate's not a person. It doesn't punish us. Like you're using very deification language, right? Because man is fundamentally a religious being. Very interesting. And, and it explains why, why we see the same human mistakes, the same human errors, and the same calls for violence or oppression or whatever it is in order to solve um, real or contrived problems. Contrived if they're just creating it to achieve more political power. So let's start with Malthusianism, right? Or Malthusian ethics, Malthusian eugenics. Malthusianism is named after the early 19th century scientist Thomas Malthus, okay? Thomas Malthus hypothesized that the population of the world grows exponentially while food production does not, with the inevitable result being massive starvation, okay? His theories of population growth and economic stability quickly became the basis for national and international social policy throughout the West. Never forget the power of an idea, by the way, okay? Never forget the power of a theory uh, driven by the right people, meaning for its success. They're very, they're wrong-headed people, but by the right people at the right time with the right movement. You got people like Alfred Kinsey, who's like almost singularly responsible for the pornographic sex ed in America's schools today, okay? And um, him, along with others like John Money, uh, this this idea that gender is different um, from sex. And so this the, all these ideologies that led into transgenderism. And Thomas Malthus is to, I guess, eugenics what Alfred Kinsey was to the sexual revolution. So just never forget that, like how dangerous actually one or two people can be with one or two ideas that they're willing to die for. And uh, if only Christians were as willing to we're as passionate about life in Christ and the capital T truth as the culture of death is for death and their ideas. Okay, so that's Thomas Malthus. George Grant wrote an excellent biography on Margaret Sanger. And in that biography, he points out how heavily influenced um, Margaret Sanger was by Thomas Malthus. And he writes in his book that Malthus, Thomas Malthus, quote, believed that the only responsible social policy would be one that addressed the unnatural problem of population growth by whatever means necessary. Every social problem was subordinate to this central cause. In fact, um, Malthus argued to deal with sickness, crime, privation, and need in any other way simply aggravates the problems further. Thus, he actually condemned charity. Yeah, charity, generosity, philanthropy, international relief and development, missionary outreaches, and economic investment around the world as counterproductive because you're because that entails caring for the very individuals that he kind of just didn't want to. He didn't want them to exist, right? Um, so a Darwinist as well, of course. And in his magnum opus called An Essay on the Principle of Population, which was published in six editions from 1798 to 1826, Thomas Malthus wrote the following. I, I want you to hear a little bit from this man, okay? This is where we get Malthusian eugenics. This led into eugenics. This led into the population bomb problem which led into abortion today. And he said, all children born beyond what would be required to keep up the population to a desired level must necessarily perish unless room be made for them by the deaths of grown persons. Therefore, we should facilitate instead of foolishly and vainly endeavoring to impede the operations of nature in producing this mortality. And if we dread too frequent visitation of the horrid form of famine, we should seducely encourage the other forms of destruction which we compel nature to use. Instead of recommending cleanliness to the poor, we should encourage, encourage contrary habits. In our towns, we should make the streets narrower. We should crowd more people into the houses. And the court, and court, 
invite the return of the plague. In the country, we should build our villages near stagnant pools and particularly encourage settlements in all marshy and unwholesome situations. But above all, we should reprobate specific remedies for ravaging diseases and restrain those benevolent but much mistaken men who have thought they were doing a service to mankind by projecting schemes for the total extirpation of particular disorders. What he's saying is, is we should discourage uh, people who want to help people who are dying and want to create environments that are actually healthy um, for people to have children and live in. We should discourage those people, let nature take its course, and actually, actually arrange construction of new developments to encourage the outbreak of disease because we don't really want those people reproducing too much. There's Thomas Malthus for you guys in his magnum opus, an essay on the principle of population. Bigotry, if I ever heard it. George Grant again points out in his book the following. He says that Malthus's disciples, the Malthusians and the Neo-Malthusians, believe that if Western civilization were to survive, the physically unfit, the materially poor, the spiritually diseased, the racially inferior, and the mentally incompetent had to somehow be suppressed and isolated, or perhaps even eliminated. And while Malthus was forthright in recommending plague, pestilence, and putrefaction, his disciples felt that the subtler and more scientific approaches were more practical and acceptable ways to ease the pressures of the suppressed overpopulation. In other words, the Malthusians wanted everything Thomas Malthus articulated and envisioned. They just wanted to do it in a more soft soap, okay, um, way that became more acceptable to the public to offer his philosophies under socially impeccable auspices, to not be so clear with your agenda, right? To be a politician, in other words, to be like Dr. Fauci, who says some of the most horrible things, but says it in a way that might confuse people or make it sound even good. So, so that's Malthusianism, okay? That's kind of where a lot of these ideas begin when you talk about sacrificing human beings, when you talk about deciding which kind of racial and social classes that you want to live or not. It really begins in the 1800s with Thomas Malthus, but then his disciples reigned in this idea of eugenics, which initially okay, w did not have negative connotations attached to it, especially the ways that it was offered. It's always for the good of humanity, right? Um, which, uh, what was the one thinker who said that the, the, the welfare of humanity is always the alibi of tyrants, right? <laughs> that you're offering it under the pretenses of false compassion. So we move from Malthusianism to eugenics, the next step in this movement, okay? The theory that not all races are the same and that the bad races must die out to make room for the good ones. The bad races, of course, if you know eugenics, were generally those who were poorer and darker than the proponents of eugenics. Early proponents of this theory, of course, included people like Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, who openly expressed racist beliefs and who was admired by the Nazi regime. And I'll get into that in just a little bit as well. The birth control movement and the eugenics movement were the same movement. You need to understand this, okay? The birth control movement largely reigned in by, by Margaret Sanger with her organization that was called the American Birth Control uh, Review we'll, or the, her journal. We'll get to that in a second. Changed this name later to Planned Parenthood. Okay, these were the same movement. And she viewed birth control as a way to achieve eugenic ends to the point where Margaret Sanger twice tried to merge her organization with major eugenic groups led by some of the leaders of the American eugenics movement. So who were some of the leaders in eugenics and eugenicism? Well, you had Madison Grant. Madison Grant was one of the founders of the American Eugenics Society, along with one of his assistants who became a co-author with Madison Grant named Leon Whitney. Madison Grant's most popular book was called The Passing of the Great Race, which he wrote in 1960. I want to read you a brief piece of this because the passing of the great race became one of the most seminal pieces in the construction of the Nazi regime and their eugenic legislation. So Madison Grant writes in his 1916 book the following. He says, mistaken regard for what are believed to be divine laws and a sentimental belief in the sanctity of human life 
tend to prevent both the elimination of defective infants and the sterilization of such adults as are themselves of no value to the community. The laws of nature require the obliteration of the unfit, and human life is valuable only when it is of use to the community or race. <laughs> you can't get more explicit than that. Human life is only valuable when it is of use to the community or race. Well, you know what, Madison Grant? I don't think you were of any use to community, <laughs> okay, or to, to, the, to the American human race. So let's just kill you, right? Of course, of course, that's never how it works when you're an elitist, right? They would never allow their same premises to be wielded in a way that would endanger their own rights. That's part of what it means to be an elitist. So in 1924, Adolf Hitler was a corporal in the German army and was serving time in prison for a failed coup attempt in Munich. Now, this is, this is a, one of the least known um, facts regarding the relationship between sort of American intellectuals and the Nazi regime, and you need to understand this. While in prison for his failed coup attempt in Munich, Adolf Hitler was poring over the writings of American eugenicists who were best friends with Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, some of whom sat on Margaret Sanger's board or wrote editorials in her birth control review before it was renamed Planned Parenthood. Okay, so you need to understand this. While in prison, Adolf Hitler poured over the writings of American eugenicists, particularly of Madison Grant, the passing of the great race, the section I just read to you from. While in jail, Adolf Hitler wrote fan mail to both Leon Whitney and Madison Grant, calling Madison Grant's book, quote, his Bible, calling Madison Grant's books his Bible. Madison Grant was a Sanger ally and a friend of Margaret Sanger's and a prominent, of course, Darwin apostle and eugenicist. And last point here on Madison Grant, he helped to exhibit Oda Benga, Oda Benga, an African-American man in a cage with an orangutan for 10 days at New York City's Bronx Zoo to, quote, illustrate evolution. Ada Benga took his own life 10 years later. Okay, there's Madison Grant for you. Okay, just so you understand the progression of these ideas, the people involved with them, and how this led us to the ideology of Planned Parenthood and abortion today. Next sort of figure in the eugenics movement in America you need to know is named Lothrop Stoddard. Lothrop Stoddard. Lothrop study, uh, published regularly in the Birth Control Review, which was, planned, which was Margaret Sanger's publication, and was a high official of the Massachusetts Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> okay? And his book, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy, was also... Um, deeply enjoyed by Adolf Hitler while he was in jail, the rising tide of color against white world supremacy. Between 1939 and 1940, Lothrop Stoddard spent four months as a journalist for the North American Newspaper Alliance in Nazi Germany, and I guess it's fair to say received preferential treatment, nice treatment, um, from Nazi officials compared to other journalists because they knew that he was on the same team. In 1934, a man named Hans F.K. Gunther, a race anthropologist, explained to an audience at the University of Munich, where he was speaking, that, quote, it was remarkable that American immigration laws were accepted by the overwhelming majority, although the United States appeared the most liberal country of the world. And he said he referred to Madison Grant and Lothrop Stoddard as, quote, the spiritual fathers of Nazi Germany. Let me say that again. A race anthropologist speaking at the University of Munich in 1934, 1934, okay, so we're not full-on Holocaust yet, said that Madison Grant and Lothrop Stoddard were the spiritual fathers of Nazi Germany. Just to give you an understanding of the impact that American eugenicists had on Nazi legislation and their entire Holocaust. Lothrop Stoddard wrote a memoir entitled Into the Darkness, Nazi Germany Today in 1940, about his experiences in Germany. And among other events, he the book describes interviews with people like Heinrich Himmler, the Nazi propagandist, Robert Ley, and Fritz Sockel, as well as a brief meeting with Hitler himself. Okay, Lothrop Stoddard was one of several eugenicists who sat on the board of the American Birth Control League. 
later renamed Planned Parenthood. Lothrop Stoddard and Madison Grant, degenerate demons, <laughs> right, who reigned in so many of the ideas impacting our culture today. A couple more for you, Eugen Fisher. Eugen Fisher was another eugenics expert, right, the expert class, the scientist, right, whom Margaret Sanger invited and featured as a speaker at a population conference she organized, I believe, in New York. And the thing about Eugen Fisher, besides being just a eugenics, you know, degenerate, he he had already run a concentration camp in German-ruled Southwest Africa before World War One, where he murdered, starved, and experimented on helpless Native Africans. And it was Fisher's book, Eugen Fisher's book on eugenics, which Hitler had also read in prison, that convinced Hitler of the central importance of eugenics for the type of policy that he would later enshrine in his regime. <laughs> Eugene Fisher, Lothrop Stoddard, Madison Grant, heroes of Hitler to whom he was writing fan mail, calling their books his Bible. And of course, if we're going to talk about eugenics in America, we cannot forget Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. So all of these people were neo-Malthusians. They were all disciples of the Malthusian quote-unquote ethic. Margaret Sanger, listen, we'll do a whole podcast on her one day, okay? It deserves it. But just a couple points on Margaret Sanger. Her goal was this, okay? Her goal through birth control and later abortion was this, quote, she wanted, quote, she wanted, listen, quote, the gradual suppression elimination, and eventual extinction of defective stocks, those human weeds which threaten the blossoming of the finest flowers of American civilization. Okay, she's not talking about actual flowers. That's why she said human weeds. The suppression, elimination, and eventual extinction of defective stocks, those human weeds which threaten the blossoming of the finest flowers of American civilization. She infamously wrote a letter to Dr. Clarence Gamble where she said, we do not want word to get out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, and the black minister is the one who can straighten that idea out if it occurs to any more of his rebellious members. Okay, why would you want to straighten that idea out? And why would, why would members of black churches think to assume that that would be part of your agenda? Maybe because it was a little bit clear? Maybe because anyone who was an Ezekiel watchman for our times could kind of tell the degenerate that you were? Right? Um, and then here is here is a line from her Negro, Negro Project proposal, okay? The mass of Negroes, quote, 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 particularly in the South, they still breed carelessly and disastrously, with the result that the increase among Negroes, even more than among whites, is from that portion of the population least intelligent and fit. <laughs> Margaret Sanger. From her Negro Project proposal, you can go look up all this. I'm reading to you verbatim. All right, that's Margaret Sanger, right? A Neo-Malthusian demon, right? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, these are the spiritual principalities and forces, right? Satan would kill God if he could, but he can't. So he kills babies because he knows it wounds the heart of God and wreaks havoc, right? That's what Satan does. All he can do is invert and pervert what God does and wreak havoc, um, Edwin Black wrote an, a phenomenal piece in The Guardian in 2004 entitled Hitler's Debt to America, kind of covering what I just went through. Here's what he said. Most of all, American raceologists were proud to have inspired the strictly eugenic state the Nazis were constructing. In those early years of the Third Reich, Hitler and his race hygienicists carefully crafted eugenic legislation modeled on laws already introduced across America and upheld by the Supreme Court. Nazi doctors and even Hitler himself regularly communicated with American eugenicists from New York to California, ensuring that Germany would scrupulously follow the path blazed by the U.S. American eugenicists, and they were eager to assist. Wonderful piece. Edwin Black, The Guardian, 2004, entitled Hitler's Debt to America. So we have moved from Malthusianism to eugenics. But the Nazis kind of gave that word eugenics a nasty taste, to put it lightly. Now that word always has negative connotations. So the population theory 
that goes back to Thomas Malthus, right? There's going to be a population explosion. We're going to run out of food and everyone's going to die. So therefore, we have to suppress and eh, sometimes murder people that we kind of don't want reproducing. Anyways, this population theory had to go underground and would reemerge in a new dress I call of false compassion known as the population explosion or the population bomb. Ever heard that before? That ring a bell? The population bomb. These theorists argued that we wouldn't just run out of food, as Thomas Malthus suggested. We will run out of everything, every natural resource, and most people will die. Okay, that, that was the claim of the population bomb theorists. The population bomb theory drove this phase of the same movement from the early 60s well through the 90s, and many progressive thinkers still push it today. You'll still hear talk about this population bomb, and there's, you know, there's going to be too many people. Now, of course, you've probably heard of a book off of an article called The Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich. Uh, it was written in 1964, okay, at which point the world population was 3.5 billion. And Paul Ehrlich, in his book, The Population Bomb, guaranteed mass starvation worldwide that was coming in the 70s and 80s. And so he advocated for massive sterilizations and abortions. As a result of these crackpot, demonic, degenerate theories, once again, don't ever forget the power of one idea by one wicked man pushing it with all of his might. Because of these theories, nearly exclusively traced back to Paul Ehrlich, being influenced by Malthusianism, of course, and American eugenicists, but reemerging this population theory in the population bomb in the early 60s, you had national and international change to adjust for these crackpot theories. So much so that Indira Gandhi, the prime minister of India, started tying water and access to electricity and medical care and ration cards to sterilizations. Sort of like uh, COVID uh, or sort of like uh, vaccine passports in some areas in, in the world today where you can't participate in society without the vaccine passport. Well, you couldn't get water or uh, access to food or medical care if you couldn't prove that you were sterilized. This happened in India. And then the most brutal evil example of all was China's one-child policy, right, which resulted in like 100 million babies being murdered, 100 million babies being murdered. Many of those abortions were forced. Well, every abortion is forced, right, because it forces itself onto the preborn person, but I meaning forced onto the mother. And there were, there were millions of forced sterilizations as well. A lot of this due to Paul Ehrlich's theories in the population bomb and the other um, eugenicists and raceologists that promoted it. But it was all... It was all crap. None of it was true. Shocker, once again, the elitists tend to get things wrong, right? Since the 1960s, the world population has more than doubled. It was 3.5 billion in 1964, and we're now at 8 billion, right? And none of Ehrlich's predictions came true. So here's the journey. Malthusianism to eugenics to the population bomb to reproductive rights. It's the same movement, though. It's the same worldview. It's the same ideology. It's what Steven Pinker came to call the euphemism treadmill, right? This is, this is our centuries-long euphemism treadmill from at least Thomas Malthus to 2022 today. This idea of a euphemism treadmill means that like you have to constantly invent new polite words to refer to emotionally laden or distasteful things, right? You always have to come up with new terms because – then after a while, that new term starts to have negative connotations attached to it. Why? Because the thing it refers to is kind of evil in and of itself, like abortion, right? Or transgenderism or, or conversion therapy, right? Or, you know, which they're saying now is like when you tell someone they're just the gender that they are. But you, when you're trying to literally tell someone that they're the different gender, right? They have to constantly come up with a new term to describe something that is socially abhorrent. That's hence the euphemism treadmill. You're always coming up with new ones. But it's all the same movement, right? These are some people, there are some people rather that we want more of, and there are some people we want less of. <laughs> and the people we want more of are good, and the people we want less of are bad. It's the same movement. Now, listen, whether every pro-choice person supports abortion for that reason or not, 
right? That there's some people that they want reproducing and there's some that there's not. Because I don't think they do. I don't think that most pro-choicers are neo-Malthusians who want less uh, mentally and physically disabled people and, and, and dark-skinned people being born. But that's actually beside the point, right? Because this is the history of these ideas. And this is how they're still utilized and wielded by elitists today. So whether you're run-of-the-mill sort of pro-choice street activist as a neo-Malthusian, you know, eugenicist or not, it's kind of beside the point. This is the progression of the of these ideas. And and people have a tendency to work out the logic of their position through their choices. They may not be able to articulate all of the premises and sort of, you know, of their worldview, but they're still operating off of ideas that they've assumed through these culture wars. Right. And through the inculcation of these ideas in the society and through our institutions and culture, which unfortunately have reinforced them with the breakdown of a Judeo-Christian ethic. Okay, I think it was G.K. Chesterton who famously said that if Darwinism was the doctrine of the survival of the fittest, then eugenics is the doctrine of the survival of the nastiest. Totally Chestertonian brilliance. Of course. These people are disgusting, right? Can you think of more disturbed? Just like, oh, ooh, like, right? It's, it's the wisdom of repugnance. It's like you just hear these ideas and, and you're like, oh, I don't like that at all. These are the eugenicists who have reigned in these ideas. And they're nasty, nasty people, aren't they? By the way, Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, kind of agrees with me on some of the points I've been making here. I know that might surprise you, the notorious RBG, right? Uh, now there's a pro-abortion group called Ruth Sent Us who are doing some of the walk-ins into religious church services and disrupting them um, because they don't they don't want to have to raise a baby they might create through having sex. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg told the New York Times in a 2009 interview that Roe was a product of the eugenic philosophy. Okay, so this is not just a, uh, you know, a uh, Republican Christian talking point. Here's what she said in this interview with the New York Times. She said, I had thought at the time Roe was decided that there was concern about population growth and particularly growth in populations that we don't want to have too many of. Ooh. Ooh. Ew. Right? Isn't that just your response? Ew. Now, whether Ruth Ginsburg was saying that those were populations that I didn't want too many of, uh, once again, is beside the point. She was saying whether she believes that or others, she's saying others obviously believe that. And I believe that that was part of the, the driver and rationale behind Roe versus Wade. Whoa, right? Whoa, that's disgusting. So I, I thought it would be, I know it was a long podcast, but I thought it'd be worth to dive into some of the history of these ideas because it's important for you to understand how we got to where we are today. And while that might seem like a detraction from this idea of pagan deities and demons working in culture and working behind movements, philosophies, and people to further Satan's agenda, I actually don't think it is. I think it's all connected. I think I think this is how the Lord of Flies and the the liar himself has has built out these alternative ideologies in the culture that pull people away from the truth, right? The only truth, uh, Jesus Christ, right? Um, so let's go back to the top of the show. The pro-abortion domestic terrorists are planning a night of rage to let their inner Tislatapoca and Moloch scream for more bloodshed because this is Satan's highest priority. In John 8, 44, Jesus says to some of the Pharisees, he says, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So according to Christ, people can be doing the desires and the will of Satan while in their earthly bodies. Sometimes even when they think that they're serving Christ. Right, that's kind of the scary takeaway from that passage. And then in Ephesians six twelve, Paul tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The culture war was always just a proxy war 
of the spiritual war. The, this is the spiritual reality and principalities behind these issues. And I think that that is the greatest takeaway I could leave with you, that the rage coming out of the throats and bellies of pro-abortion, abortophile activists today is from a dark world. It's from another realm. It's from the Lord of Flies himself, who has always been behind the killing of babies. But you've got to dress up the spiritual war in the dress of false compassion, the dress of light, for even Satan masquerades as an angel of light, and the dress of, it's just politics, it's just politics. So, hey, separation of church and state, keep your ideas and religion in the walls of the church, and will pursue our goals through the political realm. But it's always been a spiritual battle. And I think if (laughs) even reasonable moderates in the country today knew the history of some of these ideas from Malthusianism to eugenics to the population bomb to abortion or reproductive justice today— they might be more inclined to reevaluate their political priorities, their political party, <laughs> and their position on abortion. And if there was ever a time we needed to reevaluate our ideas and our position in this republic, it's certainly this time in 2022, the month that Roe v. Wade is expected to be overturned. Moloch, Tesla Topoka, or Huitzilopochtli <laughs> are just these ancient pagan demons who are screaming and raging and roaring for their daily supply of dead children. The only thing standing in their way? You. God could end abortion if he wanted to. He could wipe all of this out right now. But he chooses to work through his people and those of us who would put life liberty, and our stewardship of what we've been given to stand for Christ in a day like today. Thanks for joining the show today. Head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Give the show a rating and review. We really appreciate that. It really does help. You can follow me on TikTok, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And if you have any questions for me or you want to book me for an event as 2022 is nearly full, head on over to my website, sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter, to see my speaking schedule, or to book me for an event. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. (laughs) 